The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Life in Exile, a study of the book of 1 Peter. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Peter 1, 13-16. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is the word of the Lord. Welcome once again. Cheapers, uh, I'm losing it here. Well, when Justin asked me to, Pastor Justin asked me to come back up, we'll get there. When he asked me to come back, I was really excited to be here, but he did not tell me that when I come, came back, we would be in a tent. So usually when, when I get the opportunity to come back and be with y'all, it, it feels kind of like a family reunion. This time it feels a little bit like a family camping trip. So um, last summer, I tried to take my family on a camping trip, and it ended with my two-and-a-half-year-old and, like, 15 bug bites across his forehead. And so I'm just praying that the spirit keeps the mosquitoes at, at bay this morning as we, we uh, jump into this. Um, let me introduce myself. I, I'm, my name's Sam. I'm the pastor at Sacred City Moline, the church planner there. Um, now, some of you might recognize me. I seem like a familiar face, and I recognize some faces here. And we're going to have some microphone issues, I anticipate, because I don't think this microphone's ready for the epicness of my beard. <laughs> um, so some of you look familiar. I might look familiar to you. Uh, others of you, I have no idea who you are. And so I'd like to meet you, at least get a name to the face. Um, and so I'll be hanging out at the back um, there. So if you would just swing by and say hi, introduce yourself, I'd love to meet you, hear a little bit about how you came to Sacred City. So that'd be great. Um, so the reason why you haven't seen me is because I've been planting a church in Moline. And, and as you can imagine, planting a church is uh, pretty time-consuming. Um, but God's been very gracious, and I'll kind of give you an update here in a minute. But, but one of the greatest things here that we're just praising God for is that the mission of Sacred City Church, to make disciples, plant churches, renew the city, that's multiplying in congregations. And now we get to see not just one, but two congregations with the same mission, make disciples, plant churches, renew the city. And it's such an exciting thing. I think it's really exciting for our city as well as they see some of the beautification that we get to do, um, the way that we're living lives in community on mission and sharing the good news and the hope that we have in Christ. And so this is really exciting. And, And so I find a lot of uh, excitement and joy in the fact that we are a church that not only has a a cool mission statement, because that's kind of a cool statement, uh, but we actually live in it, right? We are actually making disciples, planting churches, and renewing the city. So it's no longer a theoretical thing, like it's a wish or a pipe dream. Like we are living in our mission, and that is such an exciting thing. Um, And so I I just want to share just very briefly a little bit about Sacred City Moline. As, as we've been at it now for about seven months, I think, um, eight months, uh, God has just been really gracious to us. Um, we've had a lot of slow growth over the last eight or nine months, um, just people going deeper into the gospel, having people who, who are not Christians come to our church and, and experience the grace of being in community and on mission with others. And so it's been so exciting. And then one of the, the cherries on top here is is this building opportunity that God's brought uh, to us, that uh, back in July, I had a friend that told me about this opportunity, and, uh, and somehow, by God's grace, I mean, the offer we put in on this building, it shouldn't have happened, right? It's, it's like a tenth of what the building is actually worth. And by God's grace, he's given us this building, super exciting, and in about a month, 
uh, will be in there. And I feel a little bit bad about telling you that because you guys are here in this tent. Uh, but uh, I hope that you can work through that and be excited for us uh, as we move that way. Um, and so what I'm, and I'm praying that, geez, this air kind of flows through a little bit. It's going to get hot. Uh, but I'm, what, I'm, what I'm equally excited about here is not just the mission moving forward and this church opportunity, but I'm equally excited today we get to jump into and dig into God's word together. Right Here at Sacred City Church, we preach exegetically, which means we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through books of the Bible. Um, and, and in both churches, we're currently working our way through First Peter. So as you guys are going through First Peter, we're doing that across the river. Um, and today we come to a turning point in this letter. It's, it's actually one of the most important parts of this letter where, where it turns from the indicatives of what God has done to the imperatives of how this affects you, how this changes your life. It goes from being statements about what God has done, his work, to what you get to step into now, the imperatives of that, um, the implications. And so if you look back, if you recall, uh, verses 3 through 12 is basically one long run-on sentence. Um, Peter just unleashes a torrent of beautiful theology. He goes and goes and goes. Uh, and we broke that up into, I think, three different sermons. So we've already devoted like three hours to this 12-verse this span already. Um, and so I don't want to re really rehash that to its fullest extent. But if you don't step back every now and then, right, you can lose the forest through the trees. And so what I want to do today is just kind of step back and reassess what's happened um, in verses 1 through 12 and, and let that show you how that launches us into the rest of this book. Um, see, because what we're going to see here is that because verses 3 through 12 or 1 through 12 is true, because it is fact that there is a new way of living. There's a new MO. There's a new mode of operation for Christians, that your life and your conduct changes. And this isn't some small shift, right? This isn't some like small adjustments and tweaks here and there. This is a, a completely radical change in the way you see the world, the way that you live in the world. To say it's anything less than that would be selling it short. See, it's so significant that the way Peter describes it, the only way that does it justice is to describe it as being born again, right? That you get completely new life. You become a brand new person. But there's been a trend within recent decades to downplay that, right? To sort of normalize Christianity because what we see here when Peter's talking, the, the people here, the elect exiles, the people he's initially addressing, they feel like weirdos in the context of their culture. Right? Living for Jesus doesn't seem normal. And so uh, I think as Christians, we kind of feel that pull. We feel that, that, that burden, that pressing down on us. And, and we kind of want to normalize ourselves. Like, hey, guys, we're, we're really not that weird, you know? But when we do that, we make compromises. We, we no longer live with a gospel worldview, uh, with gospel being the foundation of our life. We, sh we shift things around and make compromises. Now, as Midwesterners, we live in a society that values some of Christian characteristics, but they value those things most times without holding an orthodox Christian worldview. See, we have strong family values. We have desires to be good neighbors. You want to help out when you can, right? And, you, and most people are sort of morally conservative. And so in our context, becoming a Christian can easily be, evolve into just fitting Jesus in sort of retrofitting our lives to fit 
the gospel. But what Peter's gonna show us today here in verses three through 16, he's gonna blow that idea about Christianity up. He's gonna say, this mentality is ignorance. Now, no one likes to admit they are ignorant, right? It's humiliating. It takes a lot of humility to to actually come to that assessment of yourself. But Peter doesn't tiptoe around this, right? He jumps right into it. You guys, he's speaking to Christians, there was former ignorance in you. And as we approach this text today, we're gonna come face to face with our own ignorance. That might be a hard thing, right? Really, when you come face to face with this, you have one of two options. One, you reject the truth about your ignorance, cover it up, you hide it up, reject it, and in turn, you reject the gospel, right? You turn Jesus away. But the second option is far more glorious and far more rewarding is to acknowledge your ignorance, your former ignorance and humility, to repent from that and turn to Jesus. So I'm gonna ask that the Spirit help us today if you wanna pray with me. Father, we thank you for this time that we have together to study, to be students of your word. I pray that you would help me to speak with clarity. I pray that you'd help me speak with precision as we uh, go through your word. Would you reveal your sweet kindness to us? Would you show your mercy, the grace upon grace, Father? And as I communicate, would you prepare the hearts of the people this morning? Because listening is a spiritual endeavor. We need help with that. Would the Spirit be working and moving right now, Father, producing humility in us to receive your word? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, if you want to grab your Bibles. Uh, there, if you don't have a Bible, there's probably a Bible on your seat next to you. And flip open to First Peter chapter 1, and we'll be in verses uh, 13 through 16. Here we go. 1 Peter 1, verse 13. Therefore, therefore. Now, whenever you see therefore in the text, you have to stop and ask yourself, what did he just say? Right? Because that therefore is doing two things. First of all, it's pointing back to stuff that's already been said. It's a transition word to note when you're transitioning from the indicatives to the imperatives, right? What is fact, the indicatives, what's already happened to the commands of how this changes you. The indicatives state what is, which is verses 1 through 12, and the imperatives, which will continue through the rest of this letter, will direct how Christians ought to live. So this therefore points back to remind the reader of what's already been stated in verses 1 through 12. And I'm going to give it to you here in a nutshell because you cannot preach verses 13 through 16 without going back to 1 through 12. And this is what Peter says. He says, you have been born again according to God's mercy, which was proclaimed to you in the good news of Jesus. And now because of this, you have a living hope because you have a living Savior. And in this new birth, being born into God's family comes an inheritance that is eternally glorious and incorruptible. That you are being guarded by God's power to reach said inheritance. But in the process, you're going to face trials. You're going to go through difficult seasons. But this is necessary for you because in this, your faith is refined. It's purified. And in doing so, your faith becomes 
more precious than gold. It results in praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus is revealed to you, when your faith becomes sight. Now that's what Peter is saying in verses one through 12 here. Right? All the work has been done for you already, it's, or it will be accomplished by God's power. One day you will come to a salvation that is fully realized when you see Jesus face to face, where every wrong is made right and joy is fully restored. See, that's the, that's the indicative. That's what's been done. In verses 1 through 12, there are no commands at all. But the first 12 verses of this, this letter are so incredible that there must be a response, right? The imperatives flow out of this. See, the imperatives of this, what Peter's laying out here, are not, not a way to seal the deal, right? It's not a way to capitalize on what's being promised. It's, it's happening in light of the promise that's already been made. Therefore, that word therefore also points us forward. It says, in light of these things, things are going to be different. Your life is going to change. Now, if something as short-sighted as winning the lottery could change your life, how much more should this? See, we have it, the spiritual lottery in Christ, that we have an inheritance that is exponentially glorious. It is undepletably fantastic. Now, if you believe this, if you see this, if you see what this new birth, this living hope, this inheritance that's being kept in heaven for you, that God is guarding you to get to that inheritance, this is going to change you. It's going to change how you see the world. And if it isn't, if it doesn't radically change you, then you can go back to this. You're not believing verses 1 through 12. And if we keep going with verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, the first indicative, the first therefore thing that it leads to here is for you to set your hope on the grace of Jesus Christ. See, the, the beginning of, uh, of verse 13 that says, uh, uh, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. That's all to lead up to this first indicative, to set your hope fully on the grace of Jesus Christ. And in doing this and looking to the future grace that's coming, it will instinctively make you recall the past and present grace that you're living in right now. See, that's because this past and present grace that we have in Christ solidifies and bolsters our future hope. Because Jesus has already went toe-to-toe with sin and death. He's already won that fight. We know one day we too will be totally and completely victorious. See, this idea of Christian hope, to hope fully on the grace, this is not wishful thinking. This is not some Bon Jovi mentality, right? You're not living on a prayer. This is bigger than hoping that the temperature in this room drops. This is a real, tangible, confident assurance of a glorious future based on past and present grace that we already have and experience. 
See, I love that song we sang today. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. See, that's the future hope that we have. The way, way that things will be one day is based upon the blood and righteousness of Christ, what he has already accomplished in the past and present grace. See, and what this, what this exposes about our hope, right? when we see what our hope is, our hope reveals what your worldview is. Your hope shows you your worldview. Now, a worldview, there, there are many different worldviews out there, but a worldview tells a story about what the good life is, what it looks like, and how to get there, how to obtain it, how to live in it. Now, worldview is the way that you look at the world, your surroundings, relationships, your job, and you, it's how you make sense of everything. Like I said, there's all kinds of worldviews, not just religious worldviews, but there's worldviews that are influenced by politics, by your upbringing, by your socioeconomic status, by your race, by the culture that you were grown up in. But the thing about these worldviews that, that we often carry with us is that all of them leave you wanting in some way or another. That all of these worldviews either have an idea of the good life that really isn't as good as you think, or has a flawed way in reaching that worldview. But a Christian worldview says the good life is when all wrongs are made right. When evil, sickness, and death are put away once and for all. When God is with man. When perfection has been restored. But a Christian worldview also tells us how to get there, right? That this is accomplished through Jesus Christ, specifically the past and present grace and the future coming grace that awaits us. See, Christian worldview looks at everything through the lens of God's story and it makes sense of everything based upon what God has done and what he will do. It makes sense of everything through the lens of grace. And since grace has already been poured out, the Christian worldview carries with it an unrelenting hope for the future, right? That for those that have a living hope that's based on a living savior, the good life is guaranteed to be your future. See, that's how, how hope reveals the worldview. Where your hope is distinguishes what your worldview is. Because God's story is so beautiful and compelling, Peter says this. He says, set your hope fully, completely, entirely on the grace of Jesus. Now, this isn't a sort of partial thing for the majority. This is an entirety and exclusively set your hope on Jesus. See, what Peter realizes, well, these people are in exile. They're going through the, the tough times of life. He realizes that every Christian is in a battle that will determine where you're going to place your hope, right? There are rival stories out there. There's rival worldviews that are competing for where you're going to put your hope. Now, you might not be aware of it. Typically, typically people who say, well, I've been a Christian all my life. That's all I've ever known. They're the people who are least aware of this competition. 
Now, theoretically, all their hope is placed on Jesus, but functionally, it's a different story. Functionally, their hope is dispersed on maybe one other thing, two, three other things. It's spread out. And this can be hard to detect for us. But the times that's most easily identified is when this alternate hope-bearing thing lets you down. Right, when you're hoping for something, your, your hope rests on, on your job or your family or, or whatever it may be, and that thing lets you down. It doesn't, it doesn't launch you into the future that you hope for, into the good life. Here's the reality. Whatever your hope is resting on, that thing, if it's not Jesus, will let you down. Because nothing else is capable of bearing the load of hope, right? If you think about hope, hope is a weighty thing. Real, authentic, convinced hope. It's not just a, a wishful thinking thing. It's, it's a weighty thing. Nothing is meant to bear that hope like Jesus. If your hope is on anything but Jesus, you will either crush the thing or the person on which your hope rests, or you will be crushed when that thing you're hoping in fails you, or both. Now, let me, let me illustrate this with a story from my own life. Uh, a couple of years ago, <clears throat> a couple of years ago, I, I realized that much of my hope was resting upon ministry. I had a ministry idolatry. I was hoping that ministry would, would deliver the good life for me in some ways. And we, at that time, we were gearing up to plant Sacred City Church Moline. Um, I had been working through the assessment process with Acts 29. My wife and I went away for a couple of days um, to Chicago to be assessed. Um, pretty intensive process. And I came back, and I was feeling good about it. Right, we, we sat down and got interviewed a lot. We had some things that, you know, addressing. And so it just felt like a good dialogue. I felt optimistic coming out of it, right, that I would get the green light to go ahead and plant this church that I had been dreaming about for a long time. And then I get a phone call. This phone call comes with different results than what I was hoping for. And they say, hey, you know what, Sam, we think... We think that you have potential to be a church planner, but there are some conditions that we would like to see ironed out before you take that next step. And in that moment, I felt crushed, right? I had been dreaming and hoping that this church plant would just launch me forward into my ministry career. And they're telling me, no, slow down. My hope was resting on being a church planner, being a pastor, and now I'm being told no. And in that, I was emotionally upset. I was frustrated with God that he would let this happen. Felt misunderstood. And all this boiled over into this desire. I thought I was going to step away from ministry. Right? I was throwing a temper tantrum. Like, if this isn't going to be so, I'm going to walk away. I'm out of this. See, my hope was set on being a pastor, on ministry. And in that moment, that crushed me. It led to one of the hardest seasons of my life. Now, I did it with ministry, but you can do it with nearly anything. You can do it with your marriage, with your kids, your job, 
your, your political views, your home, your health, any of those things can be a place on which you set your hope. Right? You think that blank, right? Your, your home, your kids, they're going to make you happy. Right? In fact, this, this is why some people get married. They think, oh, this, this spouse is going to make me happy. They're going to launch me into the, this, this realization of the good life. And so you start hoping for that person. You hope, you're putting your hope on that person to deliver that, and it doesn't work out, right? One of two things happens. Either, either that person's gonna let you down and it's gonna crush you that they can't deliver on that, that, that good life that you're hoping for, or your hope resting on that person is gonna crush them. They're gonna feel that, that pressure to be that perfect spouse, to deliver your complete happiness, And in the end, they're going to keep trying and trying and striving and striving, and they're going to get burned out. They're going to be tired to the point that, that they're either going to fold, right, say, I can't do this, which might lead to a healthy conversation, or sometimes it even leaves the people leaving the relationship. That's because your spouse, your kids, whoever, whatever relationship is, isn't meant to carry the hope that you're putting on them. They weren't made to rest your hope on. Now, I'm convinced that it is an act, one of those beautiful acts of God's grace, God's grace, to remove the things in our life that offer us a false hope, right? It's a gracious thing when God upheaves the rival hopes in our life. Now, that season that God took me through when I was putting my hope in ministry was difficult, but it was packed with so much grace. See, in that God was addressing the things in my life and, and probably addressing the things in your life that are formerly or currently giving you a different worldview than a Christian worldview that rests entirely on the hope of Jesus Christ. And even though I went through that season, there are days when I still misplace my hope. There are days when I, I go through and I think that the good life is gonna, be hap gonna happen for me when I become a great pastor. I haven't seen that day yet. But we all do this. We all misplace our hope on people, on things, worldviews. And so we have this hope divided, right? On most days, on a good day, if I'm honest about my hope, my hope is 80% on Jesus, 10% on my family, and 10% on, on my job as a pastor, right? That's a good day. We have this, we have this poll. Maybe, maybe yours is 50% on God, 50% on your, your political party or, or your, your candidate. Maybe it's 60% on God, 40% on your kids, that they would live a better life than you did. That's your hope. Maybe it's 99% on God and 1% on the Oakland Raiders. Right? Or if you want to contextualize that for Pastor Justin, that's, that's the, uh, the Crimson Tide. But if your hope is divided, you do not have a Christian worldview. Listen to that. If your hope is spread out on different things, if it is not resting entirely on the grace, the past, present, and future grace of Jesus, you do not have a Christian worldview. See, Peter identifies this pull, this tendency to misplace hope, and he says it's due to the pull of our former ignorance. Look at verse 14. It says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions, the desires of your former ignorance. Now, this might be offensive to some people. 
right? To ha- what Peter's saying here, to not have a Christian worldview that's one that's not based entirely on the past, present, and future grace of Jesus is ignorance. Now, for some people, this is an accidental ignorance. Right? You, just, you just don't know any better. Some people, this is an intended ignorance, right? That somehow you, you've kind of got a glimpse of, of Jesus and what he offers you, but you're, you're resistant to it. But nevertheless, it's, it's ignorance. See, Peter doesn't pull in punches here. He unapologetically says to the people that he's writing to, you were wrong. But here's the thing. There's good news. You were wrong, but there is grace for you. And what he's saying is that there was a time in your life, whether you're Christian or non-Christian, a time in your life where you didn't know the fullness of the grace of Christ. Right? For, for those of us who grew up in church, like myself, right, we think, oh, I've kind of always been somewhat aware of, of the grace of Jesus, but here's the reality that no one is born a Christian. If you don't believe me, go ask the preschool teachers in there right now. Little heathens in there. My son's like the leader of the tribe. Nobody is born a Christian, and therefore we have all these influences over our worldview. Whether it be your upbringing, your socioeconomic, say the stuff that I already laid out, right? These things shape how we see the world. And so when we come to Christ, there's this sort of detoxification that has to happen. Whether we've been walking with the Lord for 30 years or for three months, our worldview has to change. Now, it's easy to slip back into this former ignorance. This happens all the time, right? If you're in a missional community, you know this, right? You look at somebody and it's like, I, I know we've had this conversation with you at least a dozen times. This tendency to slip back into a worldview that's not centered on the gospel. And if you're not feeling this pull, right, this tension where, where this, this competing worldview, a rival worldview is pulling for you to come back to it, And it probably means that the former worldview that you had has now disguised itself as Christianity, right? That it's in a sense fooling you. Because if you are living as a Christian, you have a Christian worldview, you are going to feel this pull of your former ignorance. Always. Developing a Christian worldview does not happen by accident. It doesn't just fall into place. It's not like you get saved and all of a sudden everything in your mind just all completely new. No, there's this lingering, the flesh, the sin inside of you lingers with you. This pull of your former ignorance. And for our hope to rest entirely and exclusively on the grace of Jesus, we have to actually actively engage in this work. And this points us back to verse 13, where he says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. 
Right? Another translation of, of being prepared for action is girding the loins of your mind. If you have an ESV Bible, there's a little footnote that says that. Girding the loins of your mind. And what this is is a reference back to the Passover. We just got done preaching Exodus uh, a while back. And it's this, this, uh, this, see, this scene in God's story where he's getting ready to deliver his people from the slavery of Egypt. And he says, prepare yourself, gird up your loins. And what that is is a reference. Get your pants ready to run, right? A, a, a similar uh, expression would be to roll up your sleeves. Get ready for action. But before there's a physical action, Peter points that there's a mental action that needs to take place. Be sober-minded. See, what he's doing here, Peter is equating our former ignorance with being intoxicated, right? We're, we're being lazy, lethargic. We're being consumed by this. We're disillusioned with reality. And what Peter says, he's be sober-minded, get out of it, shake it off, come to grips with reality and see things clearly. Karen Jobes, who's probably the best commentator, man, she's a phenomenal commentator on, on 1 Peter here. She says this, Peter wishes his readers to avoid any form of mental or spiritual intoxication that would confuse the reality that Christ has revealed and deflect them from a life steadfastly fixed on the grace of Christ. See, Peter is saying, wake up and look at Jesus. Now, this is difficult work. This is tough. See, it's much like what we have to do these days when we're scrolling through social media and news sources. We have to determine what's fake and what's real. See, so what we do as Christians, we reason. We, we look, we see what's real and what's true. What, what does God have to say about the way we look at the world? See, when we go through the scripture and we, we develop a, a gospel-centered worldview, one of the things that happens is we're able to see through rival worldviews, right? And see how those things are trying to get us to put our hope on something else that's not the grace of Jesus. And to do this, what we need is the Spirit's help, right? We need the Spirit's help to discern what is true and what is not true, what is reality and what's false reality. And the only way that we can see clearly is when the grace of Jesus is in full view, right? It's like smelling salts, right? If you've seen a fight, a guy gets knocked out, they have that little salt that they rub underneath his nose, right? That perks him up. See, that's what the gospel does for us. We're wrestling through, we're lost in the delusion of, of all the narratives that are going on in our culture. The gospel is like a smelling salt that wakes us up to the reality. being woken up, we are to prepare our minds for action, to be sober-minded. And what that means is for us to come back to the gospel day by day, moment by moment, or to be reminded of the better story that God is telling, the more robust worldview, how grace in Christ makes this happen. We do this by studying the story that Scripture tells Right, we went through that last week. It's a story that angels long to look at. We do this through devoting ourselves to God's word, being in prayer, being in community, participating in the gathering. These are all mediums in which the gospel gets put to the forefront of our mind, right, where we develop a Christian worldview. This is way 
for you to clear your mind, to be sober-minded so that your heart will rest on grace. If your mind is cloudy, you're gonna be, you're gonna be distracted by other things. But with sober-mindedness, with clarity on the gospel, your hope can fully rest on Jesus. Now, so far, the implications that Peter lays out uh, of being a Christian points to our hearts. He says to set your hope, that's your passion and your desires, to set that on Christ. Verse 13, he points back to our heads, prepare your minds for action, being sober-minded. And now Peter is going to round out what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, head, heart, hands, by saying, prepare your hands to be holy in every bit of conduct. Look at verse 15 and 16. He says, but as he who has, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now what Peter's saying here, he's saying that to be a Christian isn't just to hope for something, isn't just a transaction that happens in your heart. He's saying it's not just a transaction that happens in your mind where you're sober-minded. He's saying it, it involves every aspect of your being, head, heart, hands. That all your conduct, that in every way that you live, every way that you handle yourself, it is to be an example of holiness. Now I realize when we say that, this might seem boring, right? We equate holiness with being boring, it's this caricature that says that Christians kind of huddle themselves up, they stay at home, they crochet. I'm not knocking on anybody who likes to crochet. <laughs> stay at home, crochet, don't turn your TV on, right? don't get to know your neighbors, practice your harp because you're gonna be fooling on a cloud someday in heaven. Right? That's this caricature of what it means to be holy. But this, friends, this is a lie, a caricature of Satan himself. See, what he's trying to get you to do is avoid you from being like your daddy who is in heaven. See, what kid does not want to be like their dad? I've seen all kinds of Facebook posts this last week. Kids going back to school, you know, they got the cute little board that says, this is what I want to be with when I grow up. I've seen multiple kids say, I want to be like my daddy. I want to have the job my daddy has, right? What kid doesn't want to be like their dad? See, this this command that Peter gives us to be holy as God is holy, it's framed up within family language. Verse 14 references being obedient children. If you look to verse 17, he had addresses God as our heavenly father. See, what this passage does, it points us to the fatherhood of God and it asserts his holiness. See, holiness is in God's DNA. That is his biggest attribute. If you have one word to describe what God is like, it is holy. In fact, in Isaiah 6, when, when Isaiah gets a view of God in, in the temple, the cherubim are saying, holy, holy, holy. That's the only word in scripture that is used three times in a row to describe what God is like. Holy, holy, holy. Holiness is in God's DNA. See, and what this does, it points to the complete otherness of God, his total purity, his absolute glory, his total goodness, and absolute perfection. See, Peter's saying, be holy like your dad. Now, for people who aren't living 
with a Christian worldview, with a, a worldview that is not based completely on the past, present, and future grace of Jesus Christ, this command is terrifying. Be holy. Yeah, okay, no. I, I can't do that. Right? It's this, this idea, you're telling me that everything that I do now, I have to do better. Not just better, but I have to do it perfectly. I have to do it with holiness. I have to be a better spouse, be a better parent, be a better employee, be a better church member. I have to do all these things to the, to the nth degree with perfection. And so what, when we see this, when we look at this with, without a Christian worldview that's not based on grace, it appears to be all about what you have to do, that you have to generate some sort of change in yourself, that you have to generate some sort of self-found holiness. It, it becomes this idea that you have to live up to God's expectations for you. Right, you see that college football, football, the greatest season on earth has started already. That's right. Praise the Lord. But you see this. There's stories that are going around of, of kids who are now in college. They're just trying to live up to their dad. Maybe their dad was a professional athlete, you know, two or three decades before. And now they're just trying to live up to their dad. And that's what it feels like when we, when we don't have a grace perspective. This call to be holy feels like I'm just trying to fill my daddy's foot, foot your shoes. See, but for a person who has a Christian worldview that's based completely and entirely on the past, present, and future grace of Jesus Christ, and you have a hope, a living hope, this is not scary at all. Not scary at all. Because when a Christian is called to, to holiness, it isn't about doing, it's about being what you already are. See, this is not a command to be a better person. It's a command to be what you already are, what Christ has already made you, this new identity, this new ID, DNA that's embedded in you because of what Christ has done. See, Peter's command is to, to be, for Christians, is to be what you already are. Be holy because you have been made holy. That's what verses 1 through 12 are talking about. Jesus has made you holy. You've been born again. You have holiness in your DNA. Your, your daddy's got holiness in his DNA, and you, therefore, have holiness in your DNA. And so this call is is now to live in a way where there's no pressure, right? There's no pressure. You've already been made holy. You just get to step into a life that resembles what your father looks like, right? Head, heart, hands, all conduct carries holiness. So now it's not that you'll be accepted once you finally perform and be holy, but it's because you have already been accepted on account of Jesus' holiness that he lived the holy life that you couldn't live, that he never had former ignorance. He was always sober-minded. He was all, always ready for action. The loins of his mind were always girded. He perfectly represented the holiness of God. In fact, Jesus said in, in John 14, 7, he said, if you know me, you know my father. That's how good he was at it. See, this is why Jesus was a perfect substitute for you, that he was what you cannot be. And what he did, he became what you are. He became sin so that you could be cleansed and made holy. 
You go back to verse two in, in, in Peter's letter here. He says that you were sprinkled with Christ's blood. This is an Old Testament tabernacle temple reference here. That when, when they were in the temple and they had instruments, they had people, they were sprinkled with this blood. And this blood marked a sign of, of setting apart, of cleansing, of being made new, of being made holy. That's what Christ has done for you. That you have been sprinkled with his blood. You have been made holy. The work is already done. Now, if you're here today, and you're not a Christian, if you don't have a Christian worldview, the good news is that God has worked on your behalf to make you holy. That his perfect record of holiness is applied to you when you place your faith in Christ, that you are made right with God. And for the Christians in the room, the good news is that regardless of what your worldview is now, no matter where your hope might be misplaced, or how you have failed to live a holy life, the good news is there is grace for you. And lots of it. The grace of Jesus is the only thing that could possibly correct all these missteps in our life. The grace of Jesus is the only thing that can wake us up to be sober-minded, to be ready for action. It's the only thing that can allow us to put our hope fully on Christ. It's the only thing that can motivate us to live in a holy life. So friends, my appeal to you this morning is don't waste this grace. Don't waste it. Let us sober up. Let us prepare our minds. Let us set our hope fully on the grace of Christ Jesus. In doing so, allow the Spirit to work in us to make us Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise that you've laid out for us that you are, in fact, making all things new. In your grace and mercy, creation is being renewed, and we are too. Your grace compels us to be what we already are. So Father, help us to be holy. Help us to set our hope entirely on Christ. Father, if we need to repent of the places where we are sticking our hope that it doesn't belong there, would you make that where to us? Would you sober up our minds, prepare us for action, that our hope may rest fully on Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen.